Thank you, Ted, and good morning. It's good to see you folks here this morning. It's a blessing to be able to worship the Lord together as well. It really is one of the highlights of what we do in the time that the Lord has given us on this earth. And the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today in the beginning is going to remind us of that. As most of you are aware, we have been working our way through the book of Psalms. We're going to be reading Psalm 1 to 41 in this first time reading the Psalms, this time through the Word. Um, some of you may see in your Bibles that that is called Book 1 of the Psalms. There's actually five books of the Psalms, but 1 to 41 is sometimes referred to as Book 1 of the Psalms. So that's what we have been working our way through. Um, Ted opened us with a portion of Psalm 35, which is what we're reading today. Actually, for the message that I'm about to share, I want us to go back to Friday, and I want us to look at Psalm 33, Psalm 33. And we're actually going to read the entire psalm and just take time to break down what is put in front of us. It's interesting because this psalm is anonymous. It is not accredited to any specific human author. Um, I may mess up, and I may refer to David. Um, just because a lot of the psalms that we've been reading recently are by David, and this is sort of in the middle of a section of psalms that are by David, but this is not specifically accredited to David, so we don't know for sure who wrote it. But if I do by mistake say David, just realize that that's not necessarily uh, who the human author was. But let's open with the word of prayer before we read this psalm together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for just the blessing of being able to worship you, to praise you, uh, to sing to you, to lift our hands to you, to clap for you, just to be engaged by you in your presence. Thank you so much for the sisters and brothers that so faithfully lead us in worship each week. Thank you for the gifts that you have given them. Thank you for their servant hearts, their humility, their desire, Lord God, to serve you by serving us. Just pray, Lord God, that you would powerfully, powerfully bless them for what they do for us, for, for us each week. And Father, now as we take this time to read Psalm 33, we pray that you would be present in our midst and that you would be speaking to us through your spirit and through your word. We thank you so much for the book of Psalms, such an incredible, incredible collection of the prayers and the songs of your people. And I know, Father, earlier this week it was just really, really gripping me that these psalms, your people have been praying them and singing them for 3,000 years, some of them. That's incredible. We hear a song that maybe we sung 20 years ago and we say, oh Lord, that song's so old. But Lord, these songs have been on the lips of your people, some of them for 3,000 years. And so we just thank you, Lord. We thank you so much for saving this incredible collection of songs and prayers for us to read, but hopefully also to sing and hopefully also to pray. And so now as we take this time looking at Psalm 33, we just invite you to be present. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 33, hopefully you all are there now. And let's begin by reading verse 1. I think instead of reading the whole thing through and then going back, what we'll do is we'll read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, and work our way through it. The opening verse of Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous, 
It is fitting for the upright to praise him. So like many of the Psalms, this Psalms opens with a, a call to us and a challenge to us to sing to the Lord, to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord. So many of the Psalms, that's, that's how they begin. Or for a lot of the Psalms, that's the entirety of what they say. There are some Psalms that are simply a call to worship, a call to sing, a call to praise. And so we want to take that seriously. We want to take that seriously. And in verse 1 in particular, the psalmist says, because this is fitting. This is appropriate for you who are upright, for you who have been saved by the Lord, for you who have been changed by the Lord, for you who have been made righteous by the Lord. Singing to him is appropriate. What an incredible word. The word fitting in some of your Bibles, the word appropriate, another one of your translations. But what the psalm is saying at the very beginning is, is this is what is right for us to do. And so if you find yourself struggling to sing to the Lord, if you find yourself struggling to be engaged in worship, if you find yourself struggling to shout joyfully to the Lord, then this psalm is for you. Because the very, very first challenge that the Lord gives us is we are his people. We have been made righteous by him. And it is appropriate, it is right, it is fitting for us to sing. It is appropriate for us to be engaged in worship. Now, maybe you're not. I don't know. When I worship the Lord, my back is to you. I don't know what you're doing. But my hope is that we are entering into the presence of the Lord. Because this is appropriate. This is the right thing to do for those of us who have been made righteous by the Lord. And certainly there are times that it can be a struggle there are times that we simply are feeling lazy or we are feeling discouraged or we are feeling distracted. And the Lord understands that. But none of that changes the truth that praise is appropriate for the people of God. Praise is appropriate for the people of God. It is what we should be doing. Let's go on. Picking it up in verse 2. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. So now the psalmist is expanding that opening verse and is referencing some of the musical instruments of that time. And of course, I don't think we're super familiar with harp as part of worship or Maybe Carl is familiar with a, a ten-string lyre as part of worship. These are not instruments that we use necessarily frequently today. But what we see is the psalmist is really pressing this home and is saying, with whatever you have available, use that to worship the Lord. You know, years ago, we used to have a shaker egg down in the office, and I would use that sometimes to worship the Lord because that's about the extent of my musical instrument skill is a shaker egg. And even that, I could mess it up pretty easily, get off the wrong beat. 
But whatever is available, basically, that's how I want us to view these next couple of verses. Whatever is available, that's what we should be using to praise the Lord. You know, Carl uses a guitar and Karen uses a flute and other people use their voices. What do you have available? Well, we all have a voice. So we should be using that. We have hands. So we should be using them. We have feet. So we should be using them. Maybe you're not skilled in being able to play an instrument. And maybe you sing off key, but that's not the major issue for the Lord. You see, what this psalm is challenging us and reminding us of is that worship is not a spectator activity. This is not a concert that we come to on Sunday mornings. This is not for you to sit in your pew and admire how skilled our worship team is. And they are skilled. That's not what worship is. Worship is not for you to be passive, to simply observe and spectate. Worship is for you to be engaged. Worship is for you to participate. Worship is for you to take what you have available. Maybe it's a 10-string lyre. I don't know. Maybe you have one of those in your apartment or your house. But maybe it's to take your voice, to take your hands, to take your feet, to take what the Lord has given you and to be engaged in worship. Now, I'm going to say some things that you've heard many times, but I'm going to say them anyways. You need to be here to be engaged in worship. Worshiping on Zoom is okay, but you need to be here to be engaged in worship. And you need to be here at 1030 to be engaged in worship. You need to be here at 1030 and you need to be here to be engaged in worship. Because that's when it starts. That's when Carl or Aaron pick up their guitar. That's when Karen picks up her flute. That's when Elena or Maria start singing. Is it 1030? That's actually when worship with instruments and worship with singing. That's actually when it starts at Living Word. And for the most part, we're here every Sunday. You know, a pandemic forced us to be isolated. A pandemic forced us to have to worship in our living rooms on a computer. But you know what? The Lord has lifted that restriction. And so pretty much every Sunday we're here actually at 1015 to pray before worship and then at 1030 to worship. So if you're struggling with these things and Living Word has struggled with these things for decades, I don't know why. Then this psalm is for us. This psalm is for us. We need to take this psalm to heart because this psalm is a reminder that it is fitting for us to praise the Lord. It's fitting for us to sing to the Lord. It's right for us to worship the Lord. That's what we should be doing as the righteous who have been made righteous by him. Now he goes on, the psalmist, or maybe she, we don't know. And, 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 and why? Why is worship appropriate? Why is worship fitting? Because I'm telling you for the 10th time, we'd love to see you here. Because I'm telling you for the millionth time that we start at 1030. No, that's not what the psalm says. So if that's your motivation, you will absolutely fail in it. You will absolutely fail in it if that is your motivation. But the psalmist gives us a perfect motivation. Beginning in verse 4. For the word of the Lord, excuse me, for the word of the Lord is right and true. 
He is, in, he is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers, gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. You see, this is the, the why. Verses 1, 2, and 3 are saying praise is appropriate for the Lord. Singing is appropriate for the people of God. Why? And the psalm just gives us a very small list. Well, first, because the word of the Lord is right and true. And he is faithful in all that he does. Why else? Because the Lord loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of his unfailing kindness, his unfailing mercy. You see, what the psalmist is reminding us of is it is appropriate for us as those who have been made righteous to worship him because he's worthy to be worshipped. And I know seasons in my life when I have struggled to worship. Seasons in my life where praise has been difficult. The ultimate core problem is because I lose sight of how worthy the Lord is. I lose sight of how incredibly good and faithful and loving and righteous and true and just he is. Because when he reminds me of those things through his word or through his spirit or through both or through conversation, when he reminds me of those things, worship just pours out of me. Why? Because it's appropriate. Because it's fitting for the people of God. And so the answer that the psalmist gives us as to why singing Worshiping and praise is appropriate is simply the character of God and what he has done. As I've been looking at this psalm this week and as I was looking specifically at verses 4 to 7, that's what I saw more than anything else. Here is the character of God. And here is a little bit about what he has done. He has spoken by his word. And created the heavens. The psalmist particularly draws our attention to the host of heaven, which is the sun and the moon and the stars. They are there because God put them there. They are there because God spoke and they came into being and they continue to be there because God is faithful to his creation. He's worthy to be worshiped. He's worthy to be worshipped. The elements of his character that, is highlighted, that are highlighted here, righteousness, truth, faithfulness, justice, unfailing love or compassion or mercy. The end of verse 5 says the earth is full of these things. The earth is full of these things. You know, when I look around at the earth, and a lot of my earth is the city of Philadelphia, you know, unfortunately, all that I see is violence and hatred and crime and wickedness and immorality. That's there. There's no doubt that's there. 
But you know what the psalmist reminds us of is that there are other things that are there as well. The faithfulness of the Lord. The goodness of God. His righteousness and justice on display constantly for all creation to see, but for us in particular. And too many times, all I see is everything that's wrong. Too many times, all I see is everything that is still not where the Lord ultimately will get it to be. And so this psalm was incredibly challenging to me. Verse 5, that last part of verse 5 in particular, the earth is full of his unfailing love, of his faithfulness, of his mercy, of his goodness to creation. The earth is full. The earth can't contain it. But Lord, do I see that? Do I see that and do I respond to that? At 1030 on Sunday morning, is that the attitude that I bring to worship? Is that how I come to this place at 1030 on a Sunday morning? Full of the confidence, full of the joy of knowing that your earth is full of your amazing goodness and your amazing love and your amazing kindness? Or am I oftentimes quite discouraged and quite disappointed and quite distracted by everything that's not where you want it ultimately to be? You see, that's part of what hinders my worship. That's part of what causes me to stumble. And so this psalm is a reminder, not just to you, but it's a reminder to me that we need to constantly expose ourselves to the goodness of the Lord, to the character of the Lord, to the incredible things the Lord has done. And as we come into a time of worship, those are the things that he stirs in our hearts. You know, and if that's really what is happening in us as a body, then we come with excitement on a Sunday morning. We come with joy on a Sunday morning. We come early on a Sunday morning because we can't wait to express worship and adoration and thanksgiving. Not because the elders are browbeating you again, not because there's some guilt, not because there's some condemnation, because that will last for about a week. And obviously a living word, it doesn't last at all. No, what will ultimately transform us and what will ultimately change us is being consumed with the character of God. Because when we are consumed with the character of God, we can't get here fast enough. We can't get here often enough. We can't stay here long enough when we are consumed with the character of God. You see, verses 4 and following don't say do it because the elders said so. Don't say do it because you'll feel guilty if you don't. Don't say, it doesn't say do it because you'll be condemned if you don't. No, it says do it because this is who your God is. This is what your God is like. This is what your God has done. You see, when revival hits a place, oftentimes the Lord doesn't really do anything that much different. Oftentimes when revival hits, the truths of God catch fire in the hearts of people in a way that they hadn't before. That's oftentimes what revival looks like. It's not like all of a sudden we're discovering some truth we didn't know before. Hey, God is really good. Hey, God is really worth worshiping. Hey, God is really righteous. Those are truths that we've all known since we first accepted the Lord. But when revival comes, it's the work of the Lord that all of a sudden those things grip us more than they used to. 
Those things consume us more than they used to. Those things motivate us, drive us, compel us more than they used to. And then revival comes. And then revival comes. And so this is what this psalm is putting in front of us. Look at the character of our God. Look at the incredible works that he has done. What is an appropriate response to that? Come if you feel like it. Worship if the mood strikes you. Sing if you're not too sad. Is that an appropriate response? Well, fortunately, that's, that's my typical response, unfortunately. That's my typical response. But you see, this psalm is putting something so much greater, something so much greater in front of us. It's saying, no, sing to him because he's worthy. Worship him because of who he is. Shout joyfully to him because of what he has done. You know, just one simple thought. I'm a pretty simple guy. You know, it focuses on the host of heaven. We already said the sun, the moon, and the stars. And as I was thinking about the sun this morning as we were worshiping, because God created it, and I knew I was preaching on this psalm. You know, the sun is 93 million miles from us. So when you are standing on planet Earth, the sun is 93 million miles from us. I, I, you know, what's 93 million miles? We don't even know what that is. I mean, that's so incredible. But here's the crazy thing. There's a lot of crazy things, of course, about the sun. But if you look at the sun, standing 93 million miles away, you will go blind. That's how amazingly powerful the sun is. Here you are, standing 93 million miles away from this fireball that God just put up there because he could. And if you look at it directly, you will go blind. And if you look like me, if you sit in it too long, you will get completely fried. 93 million miles away, and that's the power of the sun. This is the God that we worship, and this is what this psalm is inviting us to consider. You see, when the Lord is stirring in your heart, when the Lord is bringing about revival in your heart, when the Lord is once again gripping you with the things that you've known all along, then all of a sudden, these things compel you. These things drive you. These things motivate you in a way that they didn't before. That's a big piece of what revival is. And that's a big piece of what the Lord wants to do. So, praise. It's appropriate. It's suitable. Why? Because of the incredible character of our God. Because of the amazing things that he has done. Picking it up in verse 8. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Now again, the English translation has a little trouble here because that second word usually means to terrify. And it's really two different ways of saying, be fearful, be terrified of the Lord. Now that's not something that we're really super comfortable with. But that's actually the language that the psalm uses in two different phrases in that verse that we just read, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world be terrified of him. So there is something about the awe of God, the holiness of God, the power of God that we should never completely, totally take casually. 
This doesn't undermine the incredible intimacy that we have with him. This doesn't undermine the incredible friendship that we have with him. But in fact, it goes in complement with that. There should be a fear of the Lord in the people of God. There should be a, an incredible terror just understanding what he is capable of doing. Not so much that we're afraid he's going to do it to us. Not that kind of fear. Not a fear that comes from guilt or comes from condemnation or comes from shame. But a terror that comes from just simply beginning to understand the absolute incredible power of our God. And that's what we need to constantly be trying to meditate on. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world be terrified of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it stood forth. Why? Because there is no one, there is no one who has the power of our God. And the psalmist is reminding us of that. He's reminding us of creation. All that we see and all that is unseen was created simply because God spoke. The psalmist is particularly reminding us to, to remember creation. But you know that still is true today. God speaks. And it is. God commands. And it stands. Not just in the past. I mean, in the past, absolutely incredible. In the past, God spoke and there was. God spoke and there was. But we can't just leave that in the past. It's in the present as well. God speaks. And it is. God commands. And it stands. That's why we are to be utterly overwhelmed by him. Not because we're afraid of him in the sense of shame or guilt or unforgiven sin. Not that kind of terror, but a godly terror, a holy terror that's like, God, you are so much more powerful than my mind can comprehend. You are so much more gloriously strong than anything I can fully comprehend. That's the kind of godly terror, godly fear that this psalm is inviting us to engage in. Because he speaks. And it is. He commands. And it stands. And look at the incredible contrast the, Lord, the, the psalm gives us in the next couple of verses. Picking it up in verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plan of the Lord stands firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. So the Lord speaks and it is. The Lord commands and it stands. But what happens when the nations speak? What happens when the people command? Well, verse 10 tells us that. He foils their plans. He frustrates their purposes. So he is making an incredible comparison here. The will and decree and the word of our God versus the desires and the rumblings 
and the edicts of fallen humanity. And what he's really saying as we compare those two things is there is absolutely no comparison. People say a lot of stuff, and most of it doesn't come to pass. Leaders say a lot of things, and most of it ultimately comes to nothing. And so the psalmist is inviting us to compare all the things that are spoken by fallen humanity, all the things that are declared by fallen humanity, all the things that are commanded by fallen humanity, and compare them to the word of the Lord. You know, Putin saying a lot of things. His word is nothing. His word is nothing. The Lord speaks, and it is. Not Putin. So as we look at the world around us, as we look at the city around us, and we hear all of these things being spoken, these are not the things that are ultimately to intimidate us or distract us, because these things are ultimately of no power compared to the word of the Lord. And that's what the psalm here is inviting us to consider. When the Lord decrees it, it stands forever. And that's why we petition him. That's why we come into his presence and say, Lord, please speak this. Lord, please say this. Speak your healing into this life. Speak your righteousness into this situation. Because when the Lord speaks it, it stands forever. When human powers and human voices, when we speak it, not too impressive. So this is what the psalmist is inviting us to consider here. He speaks, and it is. He commands, and it stands. Verse 12, probably one of the best known verses of Psalm 33. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. So now he is specifically again singling us out. Remember, he said it is fitting for the righteous to praise the Lord. It's fitting for the righteous to lift up their voices and sing to the Lord. Well, here again, he is singling us out as the people of God. Blessed are those who are the nation of God. The people he chose for his inheritance. You know, the idea here in the Old Testament concept, context, when, when Joshua was taking the promised land, everyone received an inheritance in the promised land. There was no homelessness. Every family, every individual in every family had a piece of the promised land. That was their inheritance. And it was to constantly be passed to the next generation. They were never to ultimately lose that land. There was never to be a family or a clan in Israel that did not have an inheritance in the promised land. That's the goodness of God to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's what God says we are to him. We are his inheritance. We belong to him. He has claimed us as his own. And we will belong to him forever. 
That's what is being spoken here when it says, Blessed is the nation or blessed are the people whose God is the Lord, those whom he chose as his inheritance. That's who we are. That's who we are. Of all the people in the entire world that God has made, he chose you. He chose you. And he says, you're mine. You are mine. And you are mine forever. That's what he is saying here. And, and, and it's just one word, but what an incredible word. Because that is true, we are blessed. We are blessed. Do you walk through each day saying, wow, I am blessed because God chose me. I am blessed because I am his inheritance. God could take for himself whatever he wants. It's all his anyways. So out of the entire universe that God has made, he looked at you. And he said, I want you. You're mine. You're mine. We are so incredibly blessed. We are so incredibly blessed. And we are simply trusting that as the Lord continues to put these truths in front of us, they will grow even more dear to us. They will catch fire even more in our hearts. Because that's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for. Then verse 13. A little bit of a transition here, at least as I read it. One of the things that's really challenging to me about the Psalms, I don't know if you are challenged with it as well. Sometimes a single Psalm seems like a collection of fairly disjointed ideas. Now that may just be because I'm, you know, not, not the sharpest, you know, tool in the toolbox. But as I'm reading through a Psalm, sometimes I'm like, well, why does he jump from this to this? And how does that come to, you know, probably someone a lot sharper than me can see the connection here, but I struggle sometimes. And as I was looking at this Psalm, you know, it seems like there's a lot of really amazing things, but I'm not sure I completely see the connection. So if the sermon is kind of coming out that way, I apologize. That's just the way the Psalm comes across to me. But anyways, picking it up in verse 13, it says, from the heavens, the Lord looks down and he sees everyone. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. So this is simply an incredible reminder that God sees and knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. And it's an incredibly sort of provocative way of presenting it. Because the picture is, you know, God is high up in heaven and he's looking down. He's looking down on earth as if he's like in some sort of tower looking down below. And scripture is full of this, using this incredibly, you know, engaging and provocative language for us to consider these unimaginable attributes of our God. God sees everything. God knows everything. And so the picture here, it's like he's up in the heavens looking down and nothing is hidden from him. And in fact, he is the one who forms the hearts. And he is the one that considers and knows everything that we do. 
And so God is with us. God's eyes are on us. And nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is hidden from him. So then picking it up in verse 16, there's another challenge here. Verses 16 and 17. It says, No king can save by the size of his army, nor warrior by his great strength escape. A horse is, excuse me, a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. So as we're considering the God who knows everything, as we're considering the God who sees everything, as we're considering the God who has nothing escape his vision, his knowledge, his understanding, as we're trying to comprehend that, you know, we just try to hold on to a few small facts to get through our day, to get through our job, to get through school, to get through whatever it is we have to do. We're holding on to a few puny facts, and oftentimes, you know, we get those confused, and we get those messed up, and we forget them, and we see so little. So here we are trying to comprehend that everything that is knowable is known by God. Everything that is seeable is seen by God. There's nothing hidden from Him. And then all of a sudden, the psalmist says, Look at that puny king. Look at that puny army. Look at that weakling horse. They are completely and totally incapable of saving, of bringing deliverance. Now, probably most of you are not trusting in an earthly king. Probably not most of you are, are trusting in a, a powerful horse that you ride each day. Most of you are probably not trusting in an army to save you. But, you know, to modernize these two verses, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Because if you're not trusting solely, completely, totally in the God who sees everything and the God who knows everything, you are trusting in something that is completely feeble and weak. And you are absolutely going to be disappointed. So what are you putting your trust in? You know, in the ancient world, it was easy to trust in a king. It was easy to trust in a king's army. It was easy to trust in the king's horses. Because they were strong. They were powerful. They had authority. It was easy to put your trust in those things. But the psalmist here is saying, wait a second. If you're putting your trust in those things... They are completely and totally incapable of saving. So what are you putting your trust in? What are you putting your hope in? If it's anything other than the God who sees and knows everything, it's incapable of saving. It's incapable of delivering. Are you trusting in your own ability? Are you trusting in your own wisdom? Are you trusting in your finances? Are you trusting in who knows what? We've got an election season coming up. Are you trusting in politics? Are you trusting in whoever is going to be in whatever seat of power that is being put out there on the ads? I mean, has, 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 has Fetterman or Oz, has either one of them done anything good? Because every ad I see is Fetterman is the devil, and then the next ad I see is Oz is the devil. I mean, it's all they can do is tell me how terrible both of them are. So it's like, well, why would I vote for either of them then if they're both such awful individuals? 
I didn't even know they were running until my daughter told me they were running. But you all know where I stand on political issues. But at the end of the day, if you want to vote, vote. Absolutely, go for it, vote. But don't put your trust in whoever you're voting for. Do not put your trust in whoever you're voting for. Do not put your trust in Republican. Do not put your trust in Democrat. Do not put your trust in left. Do not put your trust in right. They are completely and totally incapable of saving. They cannot bring deliverance. And they never will. They never will. Part of why America as a culture is so completely and totally frustrated and angry and constantly on the brink of rage right now is because we're looking for a human system. We're looking for a human structure to save us. It will never save. The king cannot save. His army cannot save. His horses cannot save. 3,000 years ago, this psalmist had it figured out because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. Human structures, human power cannot save our only source of salvation, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So what are you putting your trust in? Picking it up then in verse 18. And this psalm just concludes with this incredible firework of, of declaration and challenge. Verses 18 to 22. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Now, this is something that really struck me as I was reading this psalm. Because we just got through the verses, 13, 14, and 15, that said God sees everything. That God looks down from the heavens and he sees everything. He sees everyone and he sees everything. But now look at verse 18. Because now it specifically says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. So God sees everyone. But he is particularly watching you. He is particularly attentive to you. He sees everyone, but he specifically sees you. Why? Because you're his. Because you fear him. So here's one of these great, great ironies of scripture. He sees everyone, but his eye is particularly attentive to you. Because you fear him. Because you're his. What incredible comfort and encouragement that gives us. Of course he sees the entire universe. Of course he sees the entire world. Of course he sees every atom and subatomic particle. But he particularly and especially is attentive to you. And he sees you. God sees the whole universe. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, those who wait on his unfailing love. Wait or hope is now a word that the psalmist is going to use three times in these final five verses. To deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. You know, this is the 
only place in the psalm that I see an incredibly significant truth. If God is delivering those who fear him from death, that means they were in a near-death situation. If God is keeping them alive in a time of famine, that means they were alive in a time of famine. So what is implied here is that the people of God, even though we fear him, even though we love him, we absolutely will go through difficult times. We can't be delivered from death if death is not a real threat. We can't be sustained in a time of famine unless we're experiencing a time of famine. You know, some of us long for God just to make everything right and to make everything right right now. But again, three times in these final five verses, two different words are used, but they mean to wait or to hope. So many of us right now feel like we are going through a season of famine. Many of us right now feel like we are going through a season of, of, of death, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the way we feel. And God doesn't say that as the people of God, you will never experience these things. What he does say is that ultimately, he will sustain you. He will keep you alive in a season of famine. And in the end, he will deliver you from death. Now, that doesn't mean he has to do it when you snap your fingers. Absolutely ask him. Absolutely continually ask him. Absolutely ask him 50 times every day. Ask him 50 times every hour. He will never get tired of hearing you ask him. But don't be surprised if you're going through a season of famine. But in the midst of that, God says, I will provide for you. I will feed you in this season of famine. Don't be surprised if you have some near-death situations, not just physical death, but situations that are incredibly draining and demanding and discouraging. But in the end, God will deliver you from those. Picking it up then in verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. We wait on the Lord. We wait on the Lord. We wait on the Lord. Three times in these last five verses, we wait on the Lord. Now, of course, we all understand that waiting can be incredibly difficult. You've heard me say it a million times. I'm one of the most impatient people that I know. I hate to wait. I want everything now. I want everything to be resolved now. I want all the problems to be resolved now. But that's not what God necessarily says. He says, wait on me. Hope in me. And his timing is his timing. So many of us find ourselves right now in a season of waiting. We are waiting on the Lord. We are waiting on the Lord. Well, really, according to the psalm, there's no better place to be. There's no better place to be than waiting on the Lord. Why? Because as Ted reminded us earlier in the service, we're not waiting on something that may or may not happen. 
We're not waiting on someone who may or may not come through. We're not waiting on a human decree. We're not waiting on human power. We are waiting on God. God who speaks, and it is. God who commands, and it stands. God who created everything by the word of his mouth. God who alone is able to save and deliver. That's who we're waiting on. If you're waiting on the Lord, you will never ultimately be disappointed. Now, if you are waiting on him to do a specific thing in your timing, you probably will be disappointed. You see the difference? If you're waiting on the Lord, you will never be disappointed. But if you're waiting on the Lord to do a specific thing in your timing, you probably will be disappointed. Now, that's not easy. A season of famine is not easy. A season where you're drawing close to death is not easy. But the Lord is faithful, and the Lord provides for us in those seasons. And in the end, he comes through. So just to wind things up here, as we are waiting on the Lord, what should we be doing? Well, we should be doing all of the things that the psalm put in front of us. As we are waiting on the Lord, we should be rejoicing in him. We should be worshiping him. We should be singing with shouts of joy to him. As we wait on the Lord, as we are waiting for him to deliver and save, we should be actively praising him. As we are waiting on the Lord, we should be trusting him. We should be trusting that he sees and he knows. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing in your life, nothing is your, in your circumstance is hidden from him. And he specifically sees you. He specifically sees you and he knows your situation. So while you are waiting on him, while we are waiting on him, we should take great encouragement in being reminded that he sees and that he knows. And finally, as we are waiting on the Lord, we should fear him. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of condemnation, not out of all those demonic twistings of fear, but a godly fear that says, God, there is no one like you. You are terrifying in your character. You are terrifying in your power. And that fear inspires us to worship to humble ourselves, to serve and to obey, and ultimately to love. Because there's no one like him. That's what we should be doing. That's how we should be living. You know, the last couple of months, one of the things the Lord has really put in front of me personally in this season that we as a community are dealing with is just be faithful. Be faithful. We know there's a lot of folks who are not here that used to be here. We know we're not as big as we used to be. 
What is the Lord asking of us in that? Be discouraged? Be down? Be depressed? Stop doing the things the Lord wants? No. Be faithful. Be faithful. You know, one, one, one answer that I want to give you. In July, we put out in front of you the financial need of the community. You know, financially, you have responded in incredible ways. And right now, we are on much more solid footing than we were four months ago. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for hearing that need, and thank you for responding to that need. When I speak to Edith weekly, because Edith handles our finances, she tells us we're in a much better place than we were in July. So thank you for that. So of course, when we look around, it's easy to see what is not here. It's easy to see what is not happening. But that usually just leads to discouragement. That usually just leads to the enemy dragging us down. Instead, we want to focus on what the Lord is doing. And in this season, to be faithful. In this season, to be faithful. And so what I'm going to conclude by asking is what does faithfulness look like for you? I know what faithfulness looks like for me. As one of the elders of this community, I know what faithfulness looks like for me. God is asking me to be faithful in this season. Now, as an elder in this community, I know what that looks like. And I need to be doing it. So what I'm going to ask each one of you, what does faithfulness look like for you? What does faithfulness look like for you? And are you walking in it? Are you being faithful in this season? Because that's what God is looking for. And again, don't do it because I'm saying it. It's so hard to preach these messages. I don't want you to do it because I'm saying it. Because if that's all your motivation, then forget it. But if the character of God is stirring you, if the goodness of God is gripping you, if the glory of God is, is just penetrating your heart, then as you respond and desire to be faithful, what does faithfulness look like to you? What is God asking of you? Because that's what we want to see. And as a community, if each one of us is asking ourselves that question, if each one of us is saying, okay, Lord, what does faithfulness look like for Dave Freer? What does faithfulness look like for me? It's not the same thing as for Earl Ridley or for Marilyn Dreer or for Jose Ruiz. Yes, God expects us all to be faithful. God expects us all to be faithful to what he is asking of us. But you need to know what does faithfulness look like for you. And because he's so good and because he's so glorious, joyfully, excitedly, enthusiastically be faithful to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to reflect on Psalm 33. And obviously, Lord, there's so much more in there that we didn't even begin to get to the bottom of. But that is just the incredible depth and power of your word. But we thank you so much, Lord God, for the things that you did show us. The incredible encouragement that you gave us, but, but a fairly strong challenge as well. And Father, I, I, I thank you for both. I love the encouragement, but I need the challenge. I love the encouragement, but I need the challenge. 
So thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you are willing to give us both. You are willing to encourage us more than anything and anyone ever can. And yet you love us enough to constantly be challenging us, constantly calling us to that greater and deeper place that you have for us. God, I just thank you that for now 99 years, your hand has been on Living Word Community. And I know that they have experienced challenging seasons in the past. And so God, what we are experiencing now is nothing new. And yet, Lord God, I want to thank you for all the incredible things that you are doing. Lord, as I stand up here this morning and see the people that are here, I am grateful to you for each one of them, for their relationship with you, for their love for you, for their desire for your kingdom, for their heart for this city. I am so grateful to you for them. And Father God, I just ask that as individuals and as a community in this season, you would help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to you because of who you are and because of all that you have done for us. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen.